Hi, and welcome to the 21st episode of the Voice of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sobolski, the founder of Ionia Healthcare Consulting. We focus on performance, quality, digital strategy, and design of voice-first interfaces for healthcare. I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Reed McClellan, the founder of Asclepius and instructor of surgery at Harvard Medical School and Boston Children's Hospital. What you're about to hear is a conversation we had recently with Dr. Eric Topol on the campus of Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California. Dr. Eric Topol is Executive Vice President of Scripps Research Institute and founder of Scripps Research Translational Institute. His work focuses on genomics, big data, and digital health technologies advancing the promise of personalized medicine. He's published 1,100 peer-reviewed articles, has more than 200,000 citations to his credit, is among the top 10 most cited researchers in medicine, was recently awarded a $207 million grant from the NIH, and has over 170,000 followers on Twitter. He's authored two best-selling books, most recently Deep Medicine, focused on AI. He's widely regarded as the most influential physician leaders in the country. Before we begin, a quick word from MedArchon, a proud sponsor of the Voice of Healthcare podcast. MedArchon assists hospitals, health systems, insurers, and other providers with a secured messaging platform they call Quark, Q-U-A-R-C. Quark approaches secured messaging through the lens of effective care team communication, essential for ED throughput and length of stay management. MedArchon has built an exceptionally strong performance case for their platform Quark. To find out more about their approach to improving clinical workflows impacting vital outcomes, Visit getquark.com. That's G E T Q U A R C.com. And now to Dr. Eric Topol. Thanks. Great to be with you. Wonderful. Um, I'm going to start off with a couple questions. So, when I meet with folks who have been in healthcare a long time, they're working in technology, especially edge of the circle expanding tech, which I consider AI to be just that, um, I'm asked the question several times, which is, do you have to explain what voice first is to audiences or to people you meet with. And a lot of times I do. Um, and that's common. That happened a lot in the nineties, for example, with internet and where we went with internet, with web pages and access for patients and, and data. Why don't you give us sort of your idea of what AI is for our audience uh, and why it's the most exciting thing you've seen in medicine in the last 40 years? Well, AI has been around even before I got into medicine more than 50 years, but what's happened in the last decade is the deep learning, the deep neural networks. Uh, and that is the way to take, whether it's images uh, or speech or text uh, and, and take this um, through machine learning, through algorithms, neural nets, to uh, get interpretations that are extraordinary. And so we've already seen that with images, we're now seeing it with voice, and uh, it's going to have transformative impact in medicine, perhaps more than any technology that's antecedent this point. The first question that comes to mind when I think about what you just said is uh, the examination of the patient, uh, the relationship that you would have as a healer with the patient uh, and using a tool like AI. 
um, things like intimacy, privacy, ownership of information. I'm curious if you could share with us a little your thoughts on just that. Um, you know, healing in the medical arts has largely been about a relationship. Um, so how does this change that? And is it necessarily better? Well, this is really a many levels that uh, we're talking about. As far as the actual encounter, it's been compromised with the use of keyboards. And we need to have a liberation from that. And that's where voice uh, into, into text mm-hmm. will be extraordinarily important. But this relationship um, has been eroding for decades. And it's not just keyboards. There are many other factors. But the biggest one, the singular one, is lack of time. And so lack of time to cultivate the trust, the presence, the exam, the laying of hands, the sense of care, compassion, and empathy, all these things have taken a hit. So, you know, there's many different strategies to use AI to restore the care in healthcare and to improve and hopefully at some point get back to the kind of precious patient-doctor relationship we had uh, over 40 years ago. Um, I love that adjective, precious. It certainly seems to be a a place where that has been eroded. You see that a lot. I mean, we've had conversations with folks who talk a lot about the inefficiencies of care and the burden of that on the physician. So when you talk about these efficiencies being magnified using AI, and I mean, in our case, voice, uh, we talk almost exclusively about how can we buy time back for the physician? How can we buy time back for the patient or be more connected? Um, do you necessarily have a hope for that efficiency to be physician side to reduce burnout? Or do you see that more of a patient side to reduce burden on them so they can take better care of themselves long-term? Well, it's really a combination. So uh, on the, on the clinician side, that's doctors and nurses and physicians, assistants and nurse um, practitioners and the whole gamut of uh, health professionals. The idea is that, voice is much faster than typing. Uh, And the accuracy now is getting at levels that exceed professional medical transcriptionists. And not only that, but there can be machine learning for that particular doctor. So it just gets better and autodidactic. So that on one side is a big decompression of a burden, uh, speed and accuracy. And the notes that we have today are 80% cut and pasted because people don't want to have to type in new information and there's a propagation of error. Uh-huh. So that is an a, a area that can only get better. But the other side of this is the, on the consumer patient side because there, there people are generating their own data uh, through sensors, uh, through their environment, through their genome, all sorts of ways of generating data. And that data has no home right now. Moreover, um, we are going to see, we're starting to see in specific diseases, conditions like diabetes, for example. But eventually we'll see a general uh, health coach, virtual health coach, which will be a voice with an avatar. Uh, The person will get to choose their avatar, but they'll be getting coaching and feedback about their data in real time. Uh, AI process. And that's going to be, for those who are willing, it's not for everyone. Uh That's going to be another way to decompress the doctor's uh, workload. Mm -hmm. So you've got things going on both ways. I I, I see it as a flywheel towards uh, this deep empathy, this better relationship, this gift of time where 
We reduce the, the burden on clinicians, uh, give patients more charge and responsibility, which they actually would like, and try to get um, healthcare in a far better state than it is today. I love that concept, deep empathy. Um, in terms of technology and deep empathy, could you go a little farther down that rabbit hole? Well, I don't like to think of it as a rabbit hole. <laughs> I actually think of it as something like a treasure. Yeah. Uh, but the idea is that um, deep learning, which we've talked about, is the way to take this deep phenotyping, which is extensive data about each person, all their inputs. That is, from ideally, from the time they're in the womb to the very present moment, with all the things that are not just in electronic record, but in these other fields and nodes of data accumulation, like I, like I mentioned. So when you take that ability to process that data through AI, uh, then you have the ability finally to cultivate deep empathy. What I mean by that is all these different ways of giving time back to two human beings who are communicating to establish the trust that used to be there that was characteristic. Um, that's really what we need desperately right now because what we have is the record worst burnout, clinical depression, mm -hmm. and suicide rates among doctors in ever in, in history. And that's and the reason for that is why did we go into this profession in the first place? It was to care for our patients um, to make a difference by, as you use the word healing, but you know, that is really the notion is that you could help people uh, with just with health, which what could be more important. But the problem is people don't feel like their ability to execute their mission. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they're just burdened uh, drowning in administrative tasks, largely about data entry clerk, work, which not only extends to being two-thirds of their work day, but also they have to take it home at every mm -hmm. evening uh, and on weekends. So something has to give. And uh, that's what I think we, we need this to restore the, take back the profession, the, the ability to care for people and reestablish uh, this really important relationship and ability for uh, compassion and empathy to be expressed. Time is so short these days that patients get interrupted within seconds of starting to talk during an encounter. And that's the last thing we need. We want to give people space to tell their story, which will never get digitized, uh, never be really captured by AI, a patient's life story. And just listening is step number one, but you've got to have time for that. What about automation? for the doctor and patient relationship. Right. So not only the, the, the way that I reviewed, but also uh, a lot of automated diagnostics uh, for patients. So routine things that are not serious, like a urinary tract infection, a skin rash, uh, an ear infection in a child, and a long list of the mo most common things why people go see a doctor. Those will be done without a doctor without a nurse. Uh, the only time that that may change is when a, a prescription is needed for an antibiotic, for example. Uh, and in many countries, that isn't even necessary. But the point being is that this doctorless side 
of routine matters that are not serious are more and more going to be using AI, validated AI um, algorithms. So with it, between all these different strategies, that's how we get this gift of time, which is the core, the way to get back to, on track. And, you know, I think the problem we have, though, uh, Reed, is that we have um, administrators, managers, the overlords of uh, doctors who want to uh, squeeze and have, got, have gotten us in the state we're in right now, frankly, um, because the question now still looms whether we'll be able to uh, undo the, what has already occurred. That mm-hmm. is, get more squeeze, more burnout, more depression, because see more patients, read more scans, read more slides, and on and on. So that actually, although I have lots of concerns about AI and healthcare, things like worsening inequities and bias and um, the methodologic concerns that you might um, uh, you know, share, uh, black box and explainability, all these other things. But my biggest concern are none of those, but rather uh, being beholden to administrators who, who only have one thing in mind, which is uh, more productivity and not using this gift to turn inwards to reestablish care in healthcare. Do you think practitioners and physicians would be able to see patients more thoughtfully with these tools? More thoughtfully and at a higher um, index of need. So, you know, simple things without a doctor, uh, more virtual coaching that preempting the need to see a doctor. Uh, um, and then when that encounter occurs, it will be with objective data that's been collected oftentimes. Uh, and then, of course, this elimination of keyboards and data clerk functions to a lo- very large, if not complete degree. Um, these are all ways that we can, we can do that. With the advent of smart speakers and virtual care assistants, what about the patient's privacy and the patient's data? Well, we have a serious problem because it's not protected as it should be. Uh, and the question is... Um, Will medicine and health data get a different level of respect and legislation, which is, I think, desperately needed? Um, it's one thing to sell a person's data uh, regarding their um, shopping, for example, or their music or things like that. It's another one to to have their very private data regarding their medical conditions and medications and all sorts of things related to that to be sold and brokered and hacked. And these are the problems we're having today. I mean, just this week, Quest Diagnostics had some 11 million people's data breached. um, And that's important medical data about lab tests, as well as other background about each of those people. Over uh, 60 to percent of Americans now have had their medical data either breached or stolen, cyber thievery, uh, hacked, held ransom by health systems uh, with, uh, you know, held hostage. So this is just an unacceptable environment. Um, And now we have the concerns about, you know, Alexa listening, even when you don't have it activated and uh, and others are smart speakers. So something has to be done. Uh, and we're just not taking this seriously in Europe with um, GDPR legislation that uh, was enacted last May. Clearly, they have taken some of the right steps to move in that direction, and we haven't yet done that here. 
um, I'm hoping because this is so important that the privacy of medical data is um, maintained. There's not just legislation that's needed. There's also technologic solutions. As I mentioned earlier, um, a lot of the data today is homeless. And mm -hmm. so we don't even have a platform for it. Um, it's not organized. It's not searchable. It's not in a user-friendly way or shareable. Um, and a lot of the data you don't even want in your electronic medical record. You don't want your genome there. You may not want uh, all your sensor data. So we, we've got to do better. One of the greatest ways we can get to privacy in healthcare data is for each person to own their data. Uh, that is, um, unlike the model of today when doctors and health systems own your data, it should be just the flip of that. Because when data is not sitting on these massive servers where they are a target for cyber thievery and hacking, uh, it, the cyber gurus say that if you just have it at the unit of one or a family, the chance of that ever uh, suffering a breach is extremely low, if not close to nil. So that's just some of the things we got to keep in mind as, as we go forward. To add to that, I remember you had a conversation recently, I think it was with Dak Shepard, mm -hmm. on what they're doing in Estonia as a use case for uh, the consumer owning their data. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, Estonia is kind of the world model for medical data. Each person does have all their data, owns their data. Wow. It sits on a blockchain platform. Uh, and it's shared uh, pieces, components of it as uh, directed by the individual or in the case of a child, the parent. And so it could be used for a medical research study. It could be, some of it could be used for a specific doctor that the patient is seeing. But that model, which is getting uh, a lot of interest in Scandinavia and Finland and other countries, uh, and also this individual data ownership is, is big in Switzerland. So many countries throughout Europe and, and even uh, in other places are starting to cue into the importance. It's doable. Estonia has proven that. It's not a big country, mm -hmm. but it's actually got the most advanced health IT anywhere. And we can learn from that. And there was a really you know great New Yorker uh, article about that last year that delved into some of the specifics. There's... Massive economies with data. In this country, legislation, of course, is one way to get it back into the hands of the consumer. But I think there also needs to be somewhat of sort of the social movement towards the consumer saying, wait a second, wait a second. Like, I do want that. I, I don't, I know Estonia is small and I don't really know that country well, but I kind of like to own my own information and protect that. How do you see the social movement of this for consumers and patients, especially uh, getting to a place where senators and representatives are pressured to? look at legislation for the American people? Well, there isn't any social movement for this yet. Um, I think it's inevitable. You know, once data became eminently portable, everything went digital. This is something that's a natural uh, step that's going to follow. The question is when. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have spoken at a bipartisan uh, uh, group uh, that the Commonwealth Fund organized, and I actually saw both uh, Republicans and Democrats fully supportive of of individual data, medical data ownership. Uh, but we just don't have the follow-through. Uh, and we don't have, you know, when people try to get their data, I've experienced it when you try to get your scans or your labs. There's supposed to be, of course, laws to support that. Uh -huh. But when you wind up trying to get your data, you find out that those laws are not being enforced 
that there's all this information blocking that is that health systems don't want to lose their patients and so they don't really cooperate and they still act as they are the owner and purveyor of all medical data and you are basically this beggar trying to show up and of course you have to pay to get your data you know copied uh, per page i mean some of the ridiculous things that are still going on today uh with fax machines and whatnot they miss incredible it is so uh you would think there would be enough uh unrest because everybody who wants to get a hold of their data unless they're just using a portal and getting the de minimis data that you get through a portal. And if they happen to be the health system that has a reasonable portal, but other than that, to get your notes, to get your actual raw data scans, to get things you need for a second opinion and another health system, it's really difficult, but we don't have people clamoring because they're, I think one of the reasons is they don't have the realization that we're ready for this, that the, the patient, world has been suppressed for so long yeah like over two millennia yeah that they just don't even know they, they ought to have rights yeah and so you know it's almost like it's uh, habitual but eventually i think there will be a social movement to turn this around and to get the, uh, the rights of individuals to their data uh, established what about fda approval of these algorithms and patient safety well, there's a lot. That's a loaded question in many respects. The reason it's, it is is because there's been oh, over 25 companies that have had clearance or even frank approval for algorithms, uh, but they're locked uh, at the moment of approval. That they're frozen. So a lot of deep learning could be far better if it could keep going and be autodidactic. So the more data it was exposed to, more inputs, it would just get even more accurate. But the way we have at the FDA right now, that doesn't occur. It's being treated as if it was a device or a drug where whatever the data is that comes in front of them to review, it has to stay like that. And any subsequent improvements would have to go through a whole other process. So that's one problem. Another problem is that you're getting into is uh, once you have an algorithm that's out there, it's a very different scenario than a doctor with a patient. That's a one-to-one -one story. Whereas you have an algorithm that's already getting legs and getting used by thousands of doctors, it could actually, if it is malfunctioning, has a significant glitch and error or malware from hacking, it could hurt a lot of people quickly. So we don't have an, a surveillance system for algorithm. We're not even very good at surveillance of drugs or devices, no less we have nothing really for algorithm. So we're going to ultimately see that happen where there's something, whether it's deliberate uh, from hacking or whether it's just some kind of software glitch that just wasn't uh, uh, anticipated occurring. We know that can occur, you know, with our computing systems of today. But now when it's a medical algorithm, it's a different story. So, you know, we're, it's unfortunate. It's probably going to wind up being reactive rather than planning this. But in my view, having anything that's treating patients, diagnosing, treating, involved with patient care, it, it's going to need uh, continuous ongoing surveillance because if we don't keep it under wraps and check, we are setting ourselves up for something to happen bad quickly, potentially. 
What are your thoughts on virtual coaching and behavioral change using these modern AI tools and voice first tools? The one question is for chronic conditions. Like right now we're seeing virtual coaching for diabetes. And the question is, is that going to be effective in having a far better management of the condition than the way it is today, which is quite sporadic. And most people with type 2 diabetes, for example, they have high hemoglobin A1Cs, which reflects that they're really not getting good control of their glucose regulation. So, you know, it's encouraging that we've seen people who are now for a couple of weeks taking a picture of everything they eat and drink, and they're getting their glucose fed back to them for a short-term sensor. Uh-huh. Uh, so they're learning what are the things in their life, certain foods, certain activities, uh, sleep, stress, that are affecting their glucose regulation. And the question is, will that have a positive behavioral impact, a, a nudge? It's not a nudge. It's direct data. Yeah. Uh, you know, what are the ways that we can use data to help people who are willing to uh, promote their own health? We've had a long history of not being able to crack the case mm-hmm. where people just want to live the way they live. And whether it's eating the wrong foods or too much or drinking or, you know, whatever it is, it's very hard to get people to to uh, move towards a healthier lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And the question we don't really know yet. Uh, short-term maybe, but long-term, can we affect with data, with a virtual coaching, can we get people to take much better care of themselves to prevent illnesses that otherwise might occur? What would you say to practitioners and physicians who claim that their role in taking care of the patient will be diminished because of AI and voice-first tools? In medicine, it's different because you're not going to have a life-threatening condition diagnosed by a machine. Uh, You're you're being told you have cancer by a machine. I don't think so. Um, And so what we're talking about, and and I already mentioned there are certain specific routine, non-serious conditions that could get doctorless. But across the board, the best we could expect is this level three, which is this balance between machine support, autonomy, and um, the, the, the normal practice of medicine. So for anything serious, cancer, heart disease, autoimmune disease, neurodegenerative conditions, things like that, we just can't rely on no human backup system or even minimal human backup. We need humans. We need doctors. We need, we need that care. Uh, and so that's level three. And we are not even close to that yet, but that's eventually where I think we're headed. Wonderful. Um, Thanks for sharing with us today. Well, thanks for visiting. It's good to have you here at Scripps and um, enjoy meeting you. That concludes the 21st episode of the Voice of Healthcare podcast on campus at Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California with Dr. Eric Topol. We thank our sponsor, MedArcon, and their product, Quark. Go to getquark.com to learn more. That's G-E-T-Q-U-A-R-C dot com.